0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Joel Streed. I oversee the teams that produce Mayo Clinic Radio, the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast, and all the great content seen on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all, and for the time being, we'll change the sound of our program just a bit. In an effort to deliver the information that you and your family need to know, the first half of our program will be focused on COVID-19. This could be in the interview format that you're used to hearing, highlights from Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts, or Mayo Clinic News Network coverage of the pandemic. The second half of the program will feature encore presentations of topics previously heard on Mayo Clinic Radio. Let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Welcome to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Helena Gazalka. Well, today it's time for another update on COVID-19. And here with us, as always, is our COVID-19 star, Dr. Greg Poland, who's a virologist and infectious disease expert at Mayo Clinic. I just wanted to start out with a question today. I've heard the term viral shedding Mm. used frequently, and I'm wondering if you can explain what that is for our lay audience.
2: You know, what happens is that we get infected via the respiratory route, and we have these viral receptors that line our respiratory route. That's how it infects our cells. That's an ongoing process. And while that's happening, people can speak, cough, you know, whatever, and that virus be shed and expelled out, which is how the next person or persons get infected. Um, that usually doesn't go on for more than a couple of weeks uh, or, or at best. But for some people, it looks like they are shedding virus longer. Now, the tough part here is we don't actually culture the virus. So I can't tell you that they're shedding virus. What I can say is that the, the uh, genetic components of the virus is what we test for, and that's what we're actually detecting. So we have to be a little careful when people say, well, I'm shedding the virus for uh, months. Uh, we don't have any proof of that at this point. We just know that they test positive, for those genetic components. So that could be old disintegrated virus, for example.
0: So universal precautions, good hand washing. Absolutely. Fantastic. Yes. What do we know about asymptomatic COVID-19 cases and why they occur? I know you're always good for a little update on the medical literature.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, this is, this is something that we're really keeping a close eye on. Um, you know, it, it's apparent that when you look at the whole population, the majority of infections are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. Most of them will go on to develop symptoms. For younger, robust people, they may not even realize it unless you very closely question them. You know, what? I, I did feel kind of fluish over the weekend, is what they'll say. Or I, I had a headache and normally I don't have headaches or lost my sense of smell or whatever it would be. It's the, it's the older people, and by older, I mean 30, 40, et cetera, that start having more symptoms. Past 50, they're the ones that start getting severe disease and hospitalization and deaths. But it can happen to any age person. And I think that's been one of the difficulties in people understanding the seriousness of this. Just because you're asymptomatic, doesn't mean it's a benign disease. It can be and does do cellular damage to you. It can affect your brain, your heart, your lungs, virtually every organ, and you may not know that. And you have the potential of spreading it to other people who may have more severe disease. So, you know, I, th- I think ultimately what it takes to know is testing at a level that we don't currently do. So the ideal thing would be to take a large group of people and test them very regularly. Now that's being done, for example, in professional athletes, but I'm talking about in older people and working people who are not as heavily sequestered from others. And those are the sorts of studies that need to be done to determine how long are we seeing um, people uh, infected and and how long from the... Uh, time of infection, to asymptomatic, to pre-symptomatic, to symptomatic in different age groups, because it's apparent it does vary by, by age and underlying medical condition.
0: What you said about the difference in how it might affect one individual versus another reminds me a little bit of um, like the common cold or upper yeah. respiratory infection during the winter. I'll be certain that members of the household, that we're all passing the same bug around, but I'm a, Have it for seven days, and you know, my husband only for 12, or vice versa.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because, um, like coronavirus, influenza virus is something that tends to affect males more severely. In fact, in general, that's true for respiratory pathogens. Uh, That while the while women actually the latest studies show that women actually acquire the infection more often. But men are the ones that are more often having severe illness, hospitalization, and death. In fact, the mortality rate, about 70% higher compared to women. Um, The other thing that I'm certain we're going to see, because it's been true in every vaccine that I've tested, is that women will develop better antibody responses than men. Uh, my, My wife has suggested a reason, but it's not a scientific one, so...
0: Um, what is the latest, Greg, about the possibility of reinfection? And are people now getting COVID a second time?
2: You know, that's a, that's a really tough question. You're, you're asking the ones that are right on the cusp of our current knowledge. I, I think I, I will come out saying this. Reinfection is going to happen. Whether it has happened so far is unsure. So when you look at antibody levels, the half-life for uh, uh, COVID-19 antibodies is right at about 70 days. So by 70 days, half the antibody level has has been lost. That's pretty typical for for most every virus, so that's not too surprising. What is surprising is that that exponential decline appears to continue for some time before leveling out. What we Don't know is what level of antibody keeps you protected. Once we understand what's called a correlate of protection, like that, it'll make vaccine development and following the science of this easier. Right now, even after somebody recovers from COVID, I tell them, I don't know that you're protected, and I don't know for how long. So at some point, people likely will have a low enough antibody level if that's the marker that they could get reinfected. Now, we're hearing case reports already uh, in the popular media, even in the medical literature of somebody who had symptoms, was infected, all the testing showed they had COVID-19, symptoms resolved, they got better, tests turned negative, and then the test positive again. Well, did they get exposed and we happened to test them on that day? Or is this evidence of a reinfection? Honestly, we don't know yet. And that's something that's gonna have to wait for kind of these longitudinal long studies that we were talking about um, earlier. Right now, all the effort is going into understanding the immune response, uh, testing antivirals, plasma, vaccines, et cetera. But that's an important study that needs to be done.
0: The COVID-19 virus creates symptoms that are similar to those you'd have with the flu. Fever, sore throat and dry cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, body pain, especially in the back and shoulders, and possible nausea and diarrhea. If you get these types of symptoms, stay home and call your health care provider for information about what to do next.
1: Mayo Clinic Radio returns right after this.
0: know you come and and tell us about um, the discrepancies in testing and things we don't know. And then every week we're going to ask you if we have um, a cure yet (laughs) or if we uh, have a preventative. So I'm wondering, um, an interesting thought, is there a possibility that any older vaccines that have been developed for for other diseases, such as tuberculosis, hmm. which is a bacteria, or um, polio, which is another virus that they could be helpful in um, finding a vaccine that will work for covid nineteen
2: yeah this is a this is an interesting question because there have been a number of retrospective observational studies that have suggested as you said bcG polio MMR vaccine are in some way protective I, I have a hard time believing that biologically. Um, It depends on what's called an indirect immunologic effect. In other words, you get those vaccines, your immune system is, quote, revved up, and you are, uh, because of that, your body prepared to fight off that virus. But that means that you would have gotten the vaccine in a time period in relationship to getting infected with COVID-19 where that would work. And of course, that's not what these studies are showing. So is it actually a marker for better health care, uh, for higher you know, uh, socioeconomic status? Is it a marker for uh, an immune system that can respond well uh, to viruses? We just don't know yet. These studies are happening now. Um, in fact, one is happening at Mayo, where they're looking back at uh, MMR vaccine to determine is there a differential in who gets uh, infected. But, but I caution you, these sorts of retrospective and ecological studies are fraught with confounding variables that can lead you in, in the wrong answer. I think if we're going to seriously consider that possibility, then we use, let's just pick MMR vaccine, we use MMR vaccine in the same way we would a candidate candidate. COVID vaccine or an antiviral. We do a randomized study and we do it prospectively to see if there's any difference.
0: It does seem like it would be difficult to separate out all the things that have happened in a person's life and how it might influence
2: exactly. uh, their
0: development of COVID after having a vaccine, usually as a child or um, yeah. an there's, adult.
2: There's so many other factors. Uh, your your gender, as we talked about, your age, um, body weight, smoking, other uh, medical problems that you might have, blood type. I mean, there's there's lots and lots of factors. There's uh, just recently published a study looking at some young men who had very severe disease. And Of the four, one died. All four of them had a uh, mutation and deletion of a really important viral receptor called TLR7. So, so it is apparent, and, and we're, we're seeing case studies now where many family members, related family members, will have severe disease or hospitalization and death. Those are almost certainly genetic markers that are accounting for that susceptibility.
0: We've learned so much, but there's so much that we don't know yet. So right. All right. I've got another fascinating question for you. We've been hearing for a long time that losing one's sense of smell can be an indicator that um, COVID, that we are infected with COVID or that the patient has developed COVID. And we call that anosmia in medicine. And I'm wondering, is there any explanation yet for why that happens? And how long does it take to go yeah, away if
2: it does? Yeah, great question. You know, that's a, that's a sign that showed up pretty early in the uh, outbreaks. Uh, I have had that uh, side effect myself, although in this case from influenza infection and sinusitis. Um, the, a new study just came out actually uh, looking at this from Harvard, elegant work that they did showing, um, and this is good news, that it is not the virus attack, attacking the olfactory or smell-detecting uh, neurons that are being destroyed. If that were be, would be the case, it would be unlikely that you would recover your sense of smell. But people are recovering their sense of smell in weeks to months. It can be variable. What they've shown is that it is the supporting cells around those neurons there are structural supporting cells. There are blood vessels and the cells that compose that, that feed these olfactory neurons. It's those cells that are being damaged. And fortunately, those cells can repair and, and multiply and, and replace themselves. That's why they're, re, they're recovering their sense of smell. But it is a, a very sensitive sign other things can do it, but it's a sensitive sign of this infection. So certainly uh, a listener that would develop and notice sudden loss of smell, that's an important finding that should be reported to your physician and investigated.
0: That's really interesting. And it's um, encouraging to hear that the sense of smell likely should recover. Yes. Um, it's, it's amazing how much uh, that can affect your life. I have a couple of patients who have lost their sense of smell for, for other reasons other than COVID. Mm-hmm. And they t- have told me how very disruptive it is to your life not to be able yeah. to smell things or taste things and that things taste taste funny after you lose your senses. what's,
2: what's interesting, and, and just from personal experience, I did not recognize it at first. It was my wife noticing, you know, you don't seem to be commenting. I always comment on the smell of, you know, her getting dinner ready or or of the dinner and I was eating less. And, and actually, we had gone uh, on vacation. Of Florida, and I realized I couldn't smell the salt water, and everybody else could. And that's how how we picked it up.
0: Do you have anything else you'd like to share with us before we go today, Greg?
2: Yeah, I I think uh, this is more a plea, as I often do, for people to really take this seriously. You know, in the last two weeks of July, we are now aware of almost 100,000 kids who have gotten infected. And you know, I, I follow the numbers uh, regularly so that we know whether cases are increasing or decreasing. We have gone from uh, four million cases in the U.S. to five million, just in 17 days. The previous million only took 15 days. So this is a very rapidly moving infection. It will search out susceptibles. What can we do other than role model and plead with people? This is a serious infection. Simple things like wearing a mask properly and something as simple as that and washing your hands could protect you or your family or somebody you love or a neighbor from getting hospitalized, from having a permanent disability, and even from dying. So this is really important. Then there's the routine part of life. We want our kids to go to school. We want to go to work. We can't do that very effectively uh when when there's this much uh of the pandemic still around and you know unbelievably we still hear of these very large public gatherings for example where people aren't wearing masks or states where there's no mask mandate this is this is perpetuating um uh, the pandemic and until we get serious about it As a nation, uh, individuals take it seriously, but until we do it as a nation, we're going to continue to be faced with this. This is not going to go away.
0: Well, thanks so much for being with us, Greg. My pleasure. We appreciate having you here. Thanks Thanks. to Dr. Greg Poland, a virologist and infectious disease expert at Mayo Clinic. And thank you, too, for joining us today, learning a bit more about COVID-19.
3: You should know the COVID-19 virus creates symptoms that are similar to those you'd have with the flu. Fever, sore throat and dry cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, body pain, especially in the back and shoulders, and possible nausea and diarrhea. These symptoms can appear between 2 and 14 days after exposure. On average, they develop within 5 days. If you get these symptoms, stay home and call your healthcare provider for information about what to do next. Reporting symptoms is especially important if you have an underlying condition or complex illness, such as heart or lung disease, diabetes, or another issue that compromises your immune system. Conditions like these put you at a higher risk in the COVID-19 pandemic, and you should contact your health provider as soon as COVID-19 symptoms appear. For more information about prevention and treatment of coronavirus, visit mayoclinic.org slash COVID-19.
1: Mayo Clinic Radio will return right after this. Stay with us.
0: Welcome to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. Thanks for joining us today. During the COVID 19 pandemic, many of us have found ourselves at home and teleworking, and unfortunately, There doesn't seem to be an end in sight to this right now. As the physical boundaries between work and home blur, what happens to our work-life balance? We're lucky today because here to discuss this with us today is the Director of Integrative Health and Wellness at the Mayo Clinic in Florida, Dr. Adam Perlman. Thanks for being here today, Adam.
4: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: Many people are working from home now and it feels like we're living at work sometimes Why is work-life balance important?
4: Let me say something a little controversial. I'm going to say work-life balance is not important, but work-life integration is. saying this a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I I think it's been out there now in the literature, this concept of work-life integration, and that's always resonated a little bit more with me. And part of the argument is that balance implies this sort of 50-50. And even prior to this moment, you know, most of us, weren't typically working 50% of the time and then being with our family or our home lives 50% of the time. And increasingly, prior to this moment, there was this integration, uh, sometimes uh, a challenging integration where work tends to sort of invade our home and private time with, you know, constantly being connected to the various devices and what have you. I think it's been an interesting moment with so many more people working from home, as you've commented on. That that's really, I think, sort of um, accelerated this concept of work-life integration. And I would imagine, for certain people, in negative ways, and for some people, in very positive ways. So it kind of depends on what your home environment is like. I would imagine, you know, are you in a relationship with people at home that is functional and healthy, and or has there been a great deal of friction, and how do you sort of find that right level of needing to maintain your work, particularly if you're working from home, needing to maintain or wanting to maintain the other relationships in your life and and find that kind of balance that we could use as a word, but ultimately it's not a 50-50. It's how do we effectively integrate? And why is it so important to answer your question is because of all the things that happen when we don't do that effectively. Um, you know, we begin to first and foremost often sacrifice ourselves or self-care
0: I love the term that you used um, integrative uh, because often I've been asked you know as a mom and as a wife well do you have work-life balance and and how do you maintain that and I've often thought not really I'm um, work goes home with me at night I'm married to another physician we're busy My responsibilities outside of work but related to work so I like that term I think that that's very useful What tips do you have then for how people can separate their work time and then their personal time?
4: And I've heard different things. It's funny, even yesterday from two different patients, one described how um, it's been really nice because her husband hasn't been traveling, right? But then she also described that she works from home, typically. She's not used to having to sort of balance kind of her work during the day with her husband being around and them talking and being in relationship. And one of the things that, that she had described that I think is really important is is to create space, potentially, if we are working from home, right? I mean, create space. She was literally talking about she has her office space that she really tries to sort of designate for work-related activities, and then she wanted to start to do a little more meditation in her case, And but she didn't want to do it in the office. So she was looking to create a separate space so she could literally physically keep a difference a distance between sort of what is work-related and is what is more around her and, and her home life. I think one of the things that is critically important in this moment, and at any time, but is to really be able to keep a routine, you might have gotten up in the morning and maybe you went to the gym first thing and showered and went to work and it's easy and now you get up and you start working. Uh, and so how do we sort of create a routine that that, uh, that allows us to know sort of when work begins, when we can sort of integrate activities that are important to us and, and find that right sort of mix and right integration uh, of, of uh, all that we want to do in our home and personal lives, as well as our work life. So the routine can be really critical to that. I learned this uh, initially from an executive coach a number of years ago, and I, I found it really helpful. And uh, it's kind of been a little bit reworked here to, to this concept of what I now call delegate, delete, and do. And I found it really helpful. When I am talking with friends, colleagues, colleagues, Sometimes patients and they're describing, you know, feeling overwhelmed, which is a, a common, I think, uh, experience, even well prior to all that's going on now with COVID nineteen. What do we do with that? This idea of delegate, delete, do I found to be very helpful. It's simple, but you know, it's really at, in that moment. First of all, we need to be, you know, use the word mindful, but we need to be sort of present and sort of sense. Okay, what are we feeling now? I'm, I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling a overwhelmed got all this stuff to do at home and work. I'm never leaving. What can I do about that? Well, if we can stop in the moment and kind of take an inventory of all that we have on our plate, often we find there are things that we could delegate. Those could be work-related things or it could be things at home. The other piece to delete, which maybe I should create as a fourth thing that I really like is sort of adjust the timeline. I think it's not there because it's not 3 Ds. Easy, easier to say delegate, delete, and do. But the adjust the timeline again, can be really important. That all relates to the final one, which is do, which is really understanding what is it that I really have to get done now. And that can be tricky when we're working from home because there's a number of other distractions going on. And so this idea of looking at that list and saying, all right, no matter what's going on, let me get these one or two things done first thing, you know, that can be a very helpful strategy to help manage overwhelm and allow a better integration of our work and our lives.
0: I like delegate, delete, and do. Do you have any suggestions for us from, for disconnecting from our devices? I feel like even though you might be at home, now the expectation is that we're available either by text or by email.
4: And again, I think we all need to find the routines that work for us. And in, a, in a funny way, you know, I actually find it in some ways more settling to keep up with some of my emails, but try to do that in a more disciplined way. So it's not just haphazard, but, you know, do you want to check it once an hour or whatever the case may be? Now, it's interesting when they've studied, at least Americans, we tend to check our phones on average more than 80 times a day. Uh, but how do we disconnect? I think here's what routine is important, you know, and sort of saying, all right, I have the phone on me all the time or it's around me all the time. You know, can I set a routine where I'm not constantly looking at emails, text messages, what have you? physically removing the phone or putting it someplace where it's just not so tempting. There was a study that came out, I'm going to say maybe last year that looked at willpower It wasn't related to cell phones specifically, but I found it very, very interesting. And it was sort of like, well, they were trying to figure out, you know, these people that are able to have all this willpower and, you know, are able to go to the gym every morning or they don't hit the snooze button or whatever the case may be, or they're able to follow a a diet. and, And what is it about them? And what was interesting was it turned out that it wasn't so much that they had willpower. It was that they had less temptation. Now, what the authors were saying was if you are tempted by something like that, then one strategy is move the alarm clock to the other side of the room. So make it less easy to just hit that snooze button. And I would say the same thing about sort of our devices. You know, I mean, if you just can't keep yourself from checking that cell phone constantly, then come up with a system where maybe, yes, you can still hear the emergency phone call or whatever it may be, because we can all make these excuses about why we always have to have it with us 24-7, but come up with a system where it's somewhat more difficult for you to just kind of habitually reach in and and check that device. But again, as I've said at the beginning too, we all need to find what works for us, right? And continually evaluate what's working and, and, and as we try to live our best lives.
1: Mayo Clinic Radio returns right after this.
0: You know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has complicated things even more because people are working from home, but we're also supposed to social distance. And so it's, it's more difficult for people to stay connected to their loved ones and their friends. And do you have any suggestions um, during this time when we're um, distancing for, for that?
4: You know, I I actually am interested in how we can enhance the experience of connecting using technology. It it can never replace the face-to-face connection. We here at Mayo have, um, you know, the integrative program have a a woman who does mind-body stress consultation, mind-body consultations. At, At her request, we've moved almost all of her interactions to virtual because She doesn't mind seeing people in person, but she really can't read people's faces when they're wearing masks. And so it's been so hard for her to interact. But at least, of course, with a camera, you can take the mask off and she gets a better sense of sort of how they're responding to the kind of things that that she's talking about with them and the kind of things that she's offering. What I've tried to focus on and have encouraged others to do is, is more frequent touch points you know, brief calls, maybe using FaceTime, doing things like this, helping relatives that may be less comfortable with this kind of technology to get more comfortable with it, you know, making really setting an intention to connect. Prior to COVID, though, I was already implementing this thing where I thought, all right, you know, I want to stay in touch with my folks, my children. So I connected sort of calling someone with my ride home. You know, I have about a 15 minute ride home and I just sort of now if I needed to, I could have put a little slip or reminder in my car to say, call somebody. But I pretty much kind of remember now when I get in the car, just, you know, take those 10 minutes or so, rotate through the kids, give your folks a call, you know, those kind of things as, as one of the things that I've done. Of course, I call people at other times, but, you know, I'm just kind of making the point that sometimes we can connect sort of habits as a way to to sort of make sure that we're implementing those things that we want to do in our lives and certainly staying connected is so important. One of the things I often like to to talk about is the idea of loneliness. And of course, loneliness has become a real problem for many people. It was a, it was really an epidemic prior to COVID-19 with about 40% of Americans, you know, feeling lonely on a fairly regular basis and loneliness, this is what blows me away. Loneliness, is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day as it relates to, to your health. And I think we need to do our best to make sure that we, in any way possible, you know, connect with with those around us, even if it has to in this moment be, you know, a little more reliance on technology than we would like.
0: I know that I have enjoyed Zoom meetings more than the phone meetings where we used to just call in that we would have at Mayo. And so I have thought many times what a very diff- different experience this is with the technology that we have today than this would have been 30 years ago or something like that. It's pretty amazing. I was amazed by what you said about the stress um, caused by loneliness. 2020 has been an unbelievably stressful year for many people. And can you tell us a little bit about how stress uh, affects us and then how do we best manage it?
4: When we think about stress, we can think about it really from a physical and mental and probably spiritual perspective as well. I think physically, you know, it's almost sort of name your organ system from the brain and, and emotion to, 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 the, to uh, the heart, to our intestines, to, to uh, our, our immune system. We know that stress can lead to increased anxiety and then sort of things that can have their own implications like disrupted sleep. Right, which you know, we may not be sleeping as well because we're feeling stressed, but then of course, now we're dealing also with sleep deprivation or sort of the, the effects of, of not getting enough quality sleep. Certainly, takes uh, you know, an integrative medicine, I would say, more holistic or whole person kind of an approach to really address sleep, uh, stress, excuse me, because it can be so impactful. And I think one of the key things that can be particularly challenging is is learning to better sort of manage our emotions and sort of, by extension, kind of the way we think. One of the things that really creates a lot of undue suffering for people is is this concept called mind-wandering. You know, we tend to sit there and, you know, worry about things that may or may not occur in the future, which can lead to a lot of anxiety often or fear. Or we tend to mind-wander back to things that have happened in the past. That often can more commonly lead to anger or feeling upset. You know, we think about, I don't know, an argument we had with a friend or spouse or something of that nature. What's done is done and what's going to happen is going to happen. And uh, you still like this expression, you can never worry enough to affect the outcome. One of the keys there is to learn to be more present in the moment, to recognize when we're doing that. That's where this concept of mindfulness comes in because, you know, it's not that you necessarily need to meditate But the ability to be more aware of the present moment, sort of realize what we're feeling and sort of how we're thinking and kind of diffuse that in the moment is is really powerful because often we don't recognize it.
0: I had spoken with one of the psychiatrists here in Rochester prior to COVID, and we've been talking about that there's been an incredible increase in uh, the amount of anxiety. Do you have any suggestion when people develop this anxiety that comes over them? Is there any suggestion for what they can do in the moment?
4: Yes, I think it's always important uh, to say during conversations of this nature that we exist along a continuum. You know, some people describe this well-being continuum, physical well-being, but our, our mental well-being, right? And so sometimes in, you know, any given moment, certainly any given day or week or what have you, you know, we have times we're feeling kind of stressed out, times maybe hopefully we're feeling happy or less stressed out. And this could be, you know, again, we could talk for hours about this. I, I, I will describe a technique that uh, can be very helpful that comes out of positive psychology and we sort of call it uh, map it, uh, sort of trap it, map it, zap it. And so if we stop for a second, we're all pretty good of, at identifying what emotion we're feeling. Like, am I feeling angry? Am I feeling scared? Am I feeling anxious? Or am I feeling guilty? What is that emotion? If we then stop and say, well, what is, what is the thought? That's behind that emotion and often there is a dominant sort of thought and belief that's behind that emotion. So, you know, let me maybe try to give an example. I have to do this presentation today, right? This talk with you. Okay. So, well, uh, maybe I'm feeling anxious that I have this. It's coming up. got to get ready for it. All right. I can recognize from a, why am I feeling anxious? Well, what if, what if I don't do well? What if you ask me questions that I'm, I'm not, I don't know the answer to okay, there's the thought that's driving the fear, right? I'll, I'll make a fool out of myself, whatever it might be, or the anxiety. Well, if I challenge that thought, well, wait a minute. I mean, you've, you know the subject matter pretty well. You give lectures all the time on this. You, you know, talk about it a lot. You write about it. How likely is it that you're going to be asked a question and just kind of go, I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. You know, it's pretty unlikely. And even if I didn't know the answer, not that I have the answer to every question, you know, First of all, we probably get edited out anyways, right? And so do I need to be feeling that anxiety in that moment? Now, at the same time, to the degree that I have a sense of what you're going to be asking, let me make sure that if I needed to brush up on a few things, you know, double check the percentage of people that use their cell phones or whatever it might be to make sure I didn't give misinformation. All right, well, that's prepping. But I don't really need to feel overly anxious about it because really, you know, I should do fine with this interview today because it's something I know very well. And so again, this idea of um, sort of recognizing the emotion, trying to understand what is the thought behind that, and then challenging that thought to see how valid it is. And if there is something valid, like, gee, maybe I'm not prepared. Okay, let me go get prepared. Uh, Otherwise, sort of letting it go. And, And again, with practice, one can become much more adept at implementing that in the moment. And I would again emphasize that mindfulness, being able to sort of stop and be aware for a moment can be very helpful with that.
0: That's great. Thank you. Can you tell us just briefly about uh, the department of, um, integrative health and wellness?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, so although we have, um, programs on all three of our major campuses, uh, I'm personally based in Florida and, um, I came here, uh, over a year and a half ago, but to, to help develop this program, um, there had been a pilot prior. Um, and, and so we now have, uh, several acupuncturists, we have nutrition, we have massage therapy, uh, we have mind body medicine as I was describing earlier. So that can be well, I don't really know how to cultivate mindfulness. I can meet with someone now who can work with me and, and, and do things like relaxation techniques, biofeedback. And the other thing that I'm particularly excited about is that we now have health coaches um, that, that can work with people even, again, telephonically. And the reason that was so important for me to implement here is that, as you've already heard me say, I mean, so much of what we need to do to be resilient in this moment, and not only just be resilient, but really grow from this moment, involves our behaviors and and things that we do have a level of control over, but that can be so difficult for people. So the the health coach is someone who can really help people not to give them a plan, not to tell them to do two more push-ups. That's not what we're talking about here. It's really about helping them to think through a plan that they're willing to engage in and really understand why it's important to them and work through barriers and things of that nature. So we've just started that uh, now just a month or a couple of months ago um, because we really wanted to help people to be able to make lifestyle changes that are sustainable for them. So, And of course, I see patients as well. So there's physician consultations as well. We look really broadly at what kind of options are out there to help both treat disease as well as improve overall quality of life.
0: So. That's a wonderful, what a wonderful resource and opportunity for our patients. I learned two great things from you today. Delegate, delete, and do. And... Trap it, map it, and zap it. (laughs) it. (laughs) Very useful. Thanks so much, Dr. Adam Perlman, who's the Director of Integrative Health and Wellness in the Mayo Clinic in Florida. We have really enjoyed having you on today. I know this is going to be very helpful to our
4: listeners. Great. Well, thank you very much for inviting me.
0: We wish you a wonderful day.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio...